0: hello 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 this is chris and eric songbox adventure i'm chris and i am eric this week marks the beginning of marvel's merry mutants month I actually managed to get all the M words in the right order on the first try, hooray for me. Um, Basically, all of June is going to be nothing but X-Men. And we're essentially going to be going in chronological order with our picks. So for my first pick here, we're going to be covering 60's X-Men for the first time. We're going to be discussing X-Men numbers 60 and 61. These are interior dated September and October of 1969 respectively. Uh, real quick uh, credits roll call. We have Stanley is listed as editor before any of her names in the credits. Stanley is still first even when he's not one of the active creators. <laughs> then we have Roy Thomas on script, Neil Adams on art. Tom Palmer is listed first as Embellisher in number 60 and then Inker in number 61 when they let you know what that actually means. And Sam Rosen is on lettering. Issue 60 is titled The Shadow of Saron and 61 is titled Monsters Also Weep. Basically just short intro to why I picked these ones was that in searching for a 60s X-Men story to do... It was either going to be number 24 with The Locust, which I just remember specifically as standing out amongst the random nonsensical early 60s X-Men villains, or it was going to be something from the Neil Adams period. And I opted to go of something that has more actual artistic merit and high quality than just a meme for a Wikipedia page villain. So yeah, this, I'd read it, Two or three times. This was your first time reading these, right?
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah, for these ones. I've read the very earliest of the Stan and Jack 60s stuff, and then nothing else, because the Stan and Jack stuff is weirdly not good.
0: Yeah, like, there's a reason that no one talks about 60s X-Men... The reason being that most of it is either outright bad or bland, that it's effectively bad compared to other things you could be reading instead. The main exception to this being the work that Neil Adams brings at the very end of the series, where essentially, when he was offered what series to work on, he wanted to work on something that wasn't successful so that he would have more artistic freedom. And that's how he got these beautiful X-Men pages that he does bringing a a werewolf, I'd say dinosaur, but you would correct me, not dinosaur. Flying reptile. (laughs) Prehistoric flying reptile vampire man. Carl Lycos. Either Sauron, as in Pterosaur, or Tyrannosaur, or Sauron, as in the Lord of the Rings character. Which is what he says he names himself after on panel... Even though, obviously, the not-actual dinosaur reference is what everyone's going to think about. I,
1: the way I see it, he probably says Sauron, and then everyone else is like, Sauron, and he's like, Sauron, and they all think he's mispronouncing because of his beak.
0: They all think he's mispronouncing his own name.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that would be my assumption. I, I, I think he's the only person in these pages... Well, no, Scott would get a Tolkien reference. Scott probably says Sauron.
0: yeah. I'm just going to drop a hot take right here. Sauron, top 10 X-Men villain, period.
1: Yeah, agreed. I Lower in that 10, but in the 10 for sure.
0: Listeners, if you have not seen him before, I'm fully going to use both pronunciations throughout the episode, by the way. So, sorry to this pterodactyl man, Sauron. But Sauron essentially is like a bipedal mostly man-shaped cross between a human and a pteranodon where he's generally rendered as having all green skin or hide whatever reptilian material is. they
1: seem to have made him scaly which is a mistake
0: i know you have opinions on proper jurassic things that that will come up Cretaceous. <laughs> see exactly see it started already um,
1: At some point, I'll just do a quick go-through of it, and then we can we can move on after that.
0: Yeah, basically <laughs> what everyone thinks when they look at him is that he's a flying dinosaur man, which again is not accurate scientifically, but in terms of actual beast appendages, he mainly has the wings, and then he has a tail that's anatomically too long, basically flying green reptilian man- as we also said he is a vampire so he sucks life energy from other beings it's not like sucking blood through the neck specifically it's just like energy vampire
1: not morbius sadly
0: sadly not morbius it's soren time fortunately we won't be talking about morbius on this podcast we will not be doing a movie tie-in episode on that particular film um, or anything that Jared Leto ever does, I'm going to go ahead and put my foot down and say. I'm,
1: I'm I'm with you on that one, yeah.
0: Yeah, but shall I go ahead and do a brief plot synopsis or do you have anything else you want to establish up front?
1: Um, I will have a lot of mean things to say about the design, but I also think it's a gorgeous design. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Early on in these issues, there's some stuff, that i'm just gonna gleam over and less get into specifically because in terms of just standard pre-trade comic formatting everything's an extended story so there's like a little bit of wrap-up of the previous month's adventure the specifics really don't matter but the x-men once they get home from all of that are looking through professor xavier's files because this is still during the time when professor xavier is presumed dead I'm not sure if this is the first time he's faked his death, or it's already been multiple of them in the 60s. I don't remember his jackass timeline. But essentially, the Xavier School is just all of the kids hanging out. You have the original five of Scott, Hank, Gene, Bobby, and Warren. And we also now have uh, Scott's younger brother Alex, aka Havoc, as well as Lorna Dane has now joined them. Um, I don't believe Lorna ever actually gets called Polaris here. I don't think that's a code name yet. She's pretty much just Lorna Dane.
1: Polaris is a Claremont invention.
0: Gotcha. Yes, that's way later. Okay. So essentially we just have these seven teenagers and they go through Xavier's old files to find a physician to help treat, uh, Scott's brother, Alex, and they come across a file for Carl Lykos- who they don't know a whole lot about. They just know that he knew Xavier somehow. And essentially, they take Alex to get treated. They say that they'll wait in the lobby. Carl is like, the fuck you will. Get out of my office. We need privacy to work. And the reason for this is that Carl Lykos puts his patients in a hypnotic trance and then has a tendency to sap their energy from them because... We'll get to the origin, but as we said earlier, he is an energy vampire. The thing is, he's normally just getting human patients, but in this case, Havoc is the first mutant that he has absorbed all of this energy from, and it's the mutant energy running through habit that he sucks out that turns him into the not-actually-a-dinosaur-man. And we get a flashback to his childhood, He was the son of an explorer who worked on the island Tierra del Fuego, which is essentially off of the very bottom of South America. Essentially, in terms of Marvel Universe stuff, specifically notable that it's getting towards the Antarctic region of the world. And, of course, we might have already mentioned at some point on this podcast, I'm not sure, but the Antarctic in the Marvel Universe is just full of places that have fucking dinosaurs. The Savage Land most notably, but just there's a lot of corners of the bottom of the world that have dinosaurs, and not actual dinosaurs, but flying reptilian creatures, as we will get to. The
1: Savage Land is so fucking weird.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure that we'll come back to it over time.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Because it's also fun, but (laughs) essentially you get the flashback to Carl as a young boy is traveling with his guide... Father, and they are essentially leading a wealthy man named Hare Anderson, and uh, Hare Anderson and his daughter Tanya. And it's a frigid island; it's full-on survival mode through the blizzardy mountain ranges. Hence, why they need a guide. And during the course of their traveling, they notice that Tanya has gone missing. And so they're trying to search for her. It's horrible, dangerous conditions, even in the best of times, much less when you get split up. And young Carl is the first to find her when he goes down a cave off the path they've been going on and hears screams where she is getting attacked. And I'm going to go ahead and open up the first not-actually-dinosaur question and show my ignorance. Is a pteranodon different from a pterodactyl? Yes. And these are pteranodons, not pteranodactyls, right? Or pterodactyls. I'm fucking up. Not pterodactyls.
1: Yeah, so according to the script, they're pteranodons. So I am assuming through all this, I did research on pteranodon because that's the species they name it. They are intending to be portrayed here. To be honest, these look like a mixture of the two. I think pterodactyls have a longer tail. But these are definitely Pteranodon heads. Like, the heads are pretty good. Um, And and when Sauron later appears fully, the head's pretty good. Yeah, I I, I think Pteranodon was the goal here, and they messed up a little bit.
0: Okay, so there's these Pteranodons that are attacking. And young little Carl Lycos, like, grabs a club and is bludgeoning at these not-dinosaurs. There's some very good dialogue that I'll get to when we dive in more deeper bit by bit later but just to continue the summary he helps Finn them off but at some point in the battle it doesn't show like explicitly on panel i'm assuming it was a bite or just some other thing happens during the battle before he passes out after saving tanya where essentially in the coming days after they've been rescued by the adults and start going back to normal life Carl finds that he has a hungering for essentially life energy that he satisfies not fully knowing what he's doing for the first time when he's weak in bed and his nice loyal dog comes up to comfort him and he touches that dog and saps the energy from it. And then that dog limps away and is explicitly said to never go near that boy again because he is just vampire-energied his dog. (laughs) Poor puppy. Over time, Carl grows up alongside Hare Anderson and Tanya and falls in love with Tanya, like soulmates from their childhood sort of thing. But Anderson is rich, does not want his daughter going to a man with no means, and... Lycos essentially sets out to make a success of himself so that he can be economically worthy of Tanya, basically. Somehow, I guess, that path leads to him becoming a doctor, hence taking on all of the patients, yada yada yada. When he transforms into Seron for the first time, he not only undergoes a physical transformation, but finds that it is affecting his morals and ethics and basically the hunger for energy is really driving him he flies out of his practice as the not dinosaur man runs into angel they basically fight in the sky we get revelations of the rest of seron's new powers which include hypnosis when he looks into other people's eyes as well as the ability to create illusions which i suppose just as a part of the hypnosis. The specifics of this are a bit weird because he basically says that the transformation has heightened his hypnosis abilities. He's ex- really specifically a hypnotherapist,
1: so I imagine it's just super hypnotherapy.
0: Yeah, it's just strange that like I would imagine the therapy like involving the use of like other objects or like specific sounds and cadences, just like It's the eyebrows. It's, it's the his eyebrows. Glorious, magnificent eyebrows. Carl Lycos has
1: the best eyebrows in all of comics.
0: It is the hypnotic eyebrows. Essentially, Angel fights Sauron. There's a whole thing where he thinks he's fighting all of these monsters suddenly, realizes it's an illusion that Sauron has cast on him. The rest of the X Men end up following behind because they're following after Angel when he leaves first. They see some of the battle unfolding. And at a certain point, Lycos can feel that he's running out of energy and he's going to change back into his human form. So he hypnotizes Angel to carry him back to his practice to safety. Manages to do all of this without letting the X-Men see what he looks like in human form so they still don't know who he is. And he gets back there in human form, finds that Tanya has arrived because she loves him and wants to see him. The father then shows up and is just like, what the fuck are you all doing? You cannot be together, I forbid it. And tears, drama, yada yada yada. The X-Men then show up in non-familial garb to check on Alex as well. They're just like, lol, that was awkward, we saw all that. And Carl's just like, get out. And then later at the mansion, Polaris is... Not yet, Polaris. Lorna Dane is looking further into Xavier's files and sees that Xavier met Lycos. I think they specifically say, I think they use the term Project Mutant or something ominous like that. And that he knows Lycos is something he calls a non-mutant variant. Which again, ominous. There's some sort of superpower shit here that I don't know what file she found that for some reason, was not attached to the one they found to contact him in the first place. I guess Xavier is really disorganized for some reason. General incompetency, okay. Lycos comes into the mansion and saps Lorna of her strength, then saps multiple of the other X-Men of their strength to turn into Sauron once again, and uses all of that energy... ...to fly his way back to the island, where he was first transformed into the vampire state to begin with. Just this frigid fucking island, thousands and thousands of miles away. Because... How much energy absorption versus how long in dinosaur form. I would say vague, but even if as vague as it is, is very dubious... of how well this works. But he flies his way back to the island in the hopes of dying there as a man, as opposed to fully giving in to all of the evil and harming people. Except Tanya has followed him back there. Somehow she has made it in a fairly comparable amount of time to him, which again, dubious, but okay. And as he's slowly dying, he sees her, is feeling these twin emotions... Of the energy vampire in him sees her as a source of prolonging life. But the part of him that still loves her finds that thought horrifying. And then goes and promptly jumps off a fucking cliff. And then the X-Men arrive just to see the very end of this. And basically to stop Tanya from jumping off the cliff right after him. And they're all just like, that sure was a noble last deed. And that's essentially how it ends. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and that-
0: that- we never saw Sauron-
1: Sauron again.
0: Yeah, I- I don't know any of the actual specifics of any of his later stories, because frankly, I don't really care. I just love him for the design, you know? He's the type of villain who's never at the center of a really dramatic story, so much as just occasionally characters will go to the Savage Land, or otherwise will just get an excuse to see this pterodactyl man- And he's the type of character that's just fun to be on the page.
1: Uh, His most famous appearance is showing up in Spider-Man and the X-Men, where he famously declares that he does not want to cure cancer. He wants to turn people into dinosaurs.
0: Yeah, this is fully a high camp character at this point, in terms of just like how modern fandom sees him. But I think these two issues actually take him pretty seriously.
1: Well, so... From what I understand, uh, Roy Thomas and Neil Adams wanted to do a vampire character, and so he was supposed to be a bat, but they weren't allowed to because of the comics code random bullshit. So they decided to make him a pterodactyl man because they could do a similar silhouette for the character and keep all the vampire stuff. Like, if you did this with a bat, I think it would be a lot more frightening than it is goofy. But because he's a giant pterodactyl man, it's very goofy and fun.
0: Yeah, it's like both to the advantage and detriment, but I think more to the advantage. Because like, if he was a bat and had more of explicit like vampire reference, which I suppose real quick, if any listeners don't know what the comics code is, it's a now outdated essentially means of self-regulation that the american comic book industry established in the 1950s that was meant to combat moral panic concerns about if comic book content was appropriate for their children and standards like changed over time and on the most part got a bit laxer over the decades but was still very strict in a lot of ways here in the 1960s to include regulation of like horror type characters especially hence the no bat slash explicit vampire stuff and while a standard vampire i think would be less immediately goofy i think that he's a much more remembered character and has probably come back more than he would have otherwise if he was a generic vampire because vampires are a dimes a dozen versus flying, prehistoric, reptile vampires. As far as I know, there's only the one.
1: Well, that, and it gives them a connection to the Savage Land, which is already a big Marvel concept. And there's only, like, four or five. Like, if you're doing a Savage Land story, Khazar shows up, Zaladin shows up, or Sauron shows up. I mean, Zaladin only showed up... 12 times, but she's literally the only other Savage Land character I can remember thanks to Cerebro.
0: Yeah, he has, like, he just visually fits really well in that locale, and it's like the Savage Land isn't a location that the X Men are in a lot, but it comes up frequently enough that it just leads to the occasional odd appearance, which helps him be remembered more than, say, the Locust who never has a reason to return.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I suppose, before diving into more specific plot stuff, do we want to go ahead and address the not-a-dinosaur-teranodon design choices and your thoughts on them?
1: Okay, Um. so I'm in a bit of a dinosaur mood at the moment between this and um, a new documentary that's out called Prehistoric Planet. So when I knew we were covering this for sure, I went ahead and I made a couple of notes. A pteranodon uh, was discovered in 1871 by O.C. Marsh. They are pterosaurs. So, to be clear, a pteranodon is a pterosaur, and a pterodactyl is a pterosaur. A pteranodon is not a pterodactyl. So, the the, the genus name is pteranodon. Um, I think the species name on most of them is Longiditis. Don't I can't remember, I didn't take notes on that, doesn't matter. So they were found in North America, uh, lived about 90 million years ago, so the Late Cretaceous, but they would have been extinct before the, like, KT extinction of the dinosaurs and, like, all the other pterosaurs and stuff at 65 million years ago. Um, so how the fuck they're in the Savage Land is already confusing. Also, North America, not the Antarctic. I, I, have they ever explained the Savage Land? Because... It doesn't make any sense.
0: I don't know that they have. Like, I think it would be enough to just say we're going to have fun and just say dinosaurs are still around somehow, deal with it. You know, it's just the fun of it. You know, like, it wouldn't surprise me if at some point if they did some sort of, like, this is an artificial zoo or something sort of thing, but I'm not entirely sure. I haven't actually read that many Savage Land stories,
1: I think it should be a temporal spatial anomaly.
0: That's what I would do. That would be fun. That is another phrase of words that you know what it means, but I do not.
1: <laughs> uh, I mean that it's literally like, say, a slice of North America circa 66 million years ago, but just is like perpetually suspended Antarctica for no reason. Okay. That would be hilarious. Like a time travel accident resulted in just a large chunk of north america right before the extinction of the dinosaurs just being in the antarctic say 30 years ago
0: okay there we go
1: anyway uh pteranodon were fucking huge they had a 23 foot wingspan so that's um on their side with their wings out that would be like two stories of a building
0: my brain tries to compute but does not but simply big
1: big not not as big as a lot of pterosaurs got. Um, Quetzalcoatlus, for example, uh, would have been, when sitting or standing on the ground, would have been as tall as a giraffe. Um, that's not the wingspan of it, which was much bigger than that. That's just, like, literally the height of the body. Uh, so, by comparison, Tyranodon is a reasonably sized creature. Um, they had a decorative crest, So, but they had sexual dimorphisms. This is one of the notes I have, is... Sauron has a crest and his, his head shape's pretty good, especially when you consider that he's like presumably got some humans still in his head shape. Um, I think his crest should have colors on it because he is a male and his crest is for display to potential mates. And that probably means that it was like colorful and bright. And I think that would work in a comic design too, so they should have done that. Um, my main issue though with the design is the wing structure Um, You can tell that it was originally a vampire bat because the wings are just bat wings. The big difference between a bat wing and a pterosaur wing is bat wings are formed from the hand, like the entire hand, Uh, because most vertebrate creatures have the exact same limbs and pretty much the same bones. Um, And so when you look at a bat wing, you've got those fingers running down it with a membrane running between them with the little claws on the end, and that's why bat wings are so fucking freaky. Pterosaur wings, they have... One really long pinky, which is the wing. Their wrist and their pinkies are incredibly long, and then they've got like three little fingers just sitting on top of about halfway through the wing. Um, he's got bat wings in this. So do the pterosaurs seen like that attacked him. It's weird. I, I I don't know why. That that's my main issue. And then. This is mo- probably mostly because this was done in the '60s, um, but his skin is wrong. Um, pterosaurs had fibers all over them.
0: Were they akin to like hair and fur, or like feathers?
1: Um, so they weren't they weren't structured feathers. So they would look like fur. So far as I'm aware, we're not 100% sure on whether that is like protofeathers, like you get on a lot of dinosaurs, where it looks like fur. Or whether it's something else that just looks a lot like that, but that's the appearance. So they're like like thin filaments. They they would have looked hairy, and then when you consider that he's also like half mammal, this guy should have body hair, and for some reason he doesn't. So that's weird. And then the long tail. The long tail is really strange. Pteranodon specifically had a very short tail, and frankly, I probably would have just not given Sauron a tail at all because uh, otherwise that would look. Super weird coming out the back of his pants When it's so small
0: Yeah I don't remember if I mentioned This earlier already But in a lot of depictions Over the years he's Shown either Wearing pants or even like shorts Which just adds to the comedy Of this almost naked Flying reptile man Except for like his little jean shorts on Sauron is at his best In jorts I would say Yeah was this... I don't know the timeline of actual scientific thought versus, say, like, film depictions and Jurassic Parks, yada, 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 and their mm-hmm. precursors, but did anthropologists and, I suppose, whatever more accurate specialty field would actually be studying... Yes. How did... See, now, that's a common one. How did I not even use that <laughs> term right? Of I've heard of that. Um, did paleontologists at this point think yet that dinosaurs and their like other similar era reptiles did they think they had fur and feathers and stuff or would like late 60s paleontologists be thinking that these were like scaled creatures
1: they would have been assuming scales which is why i forgive the scales i'm just also like it it would be cool if he was furry um that said archaeopteryx which is colloquially known as the first bird was discovered in i think 1871 maybe earlier i don't know where i'm getting 1871 from that's what comes to mind but it's it's it was like a while before this and so like the whole dinosaur bird connection is a thing that was kind of sitting there and really obvious for a really fucking long time um and it took until uh i want to say the 80s for like That to sort of go back and be like, well, hang on, then why on earth would dinosaurs be like slow, crappy reptiles if the dinosaurs that are alive today, because birds are dinosaurs, are birds and are like fast-moving, swift, well-adapted creatures? It doesn't make any sense.
0: So they were, in fact, faster and more deadly than we were even picturing?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, More
0: terrifying?
1: Dinosaurs would have been um, pretty speedy. Uh, considering the sizes of them usually
0: i i feel your concerns design wise because i know like dinosaurs and prehistoric creatures like are a specialty interest of yours (laughs) so i don't want to say that your feelings aren't valid but as someone who's just like knows less about the topic and is like less invested in the specific accuracy i still just think his design is a lot of fun oh the design is fantastic And considering the, like,
1: vampire nature of him, I get why they went with the vampire bat wings. I just think it's wrong. (laughs) It's weird, they did both, because he's got the little hands right where they should be on a pterosaur's wing, but then he also has fingers that are forming the wing, and I'm like, pick one.
0: You have a specific page opened up to when he first transforms into Sauron. Do you want to go ahead and give the dramatic monologue of what carl lykos is saying to himself as he transforms into this creature that he has never transformed into before
1: um yes so for context uh we have just found out that lykos and his little energy vampirism which like he uses a machine to help him suck energy out of people better i guess it makes him more efficient i guess i think it's mostly that because using a machine is like cool and spooky And it's the 1960s X-Men comic, so of course it's like, here's a random machine. Uh, so we find out that he's been, like, he tried working with Xavier specifically so he could get his hands on some mutants. Because he thinks that they'll provide him with more and better energy. Which, um, yeah, this guy kind of sucks beforehand, frankly. He's like, yes, uh, Xavier wants to find and train young mutants. Sounds delicious. Like, fuck you, man.
0: Yeah, like, he says that his morals get worse post-transformation, but even pre-he is fully just preying on people.
1: Uh, I think he's a lot more tolerable post-transformation.
0: Yeah, the look is a glow-up and makes it easier to forgive some things.
1: So he starts sucking down on, like, Havoc's power. It's like, the, the, the page just goes yellow. Like, this is just an immense amount of energy that's going into his body. Like, Havoc's got energy powers, too, so he must have, like, a lot. Um, and he screams, "Yeah, I can bear no more! But even breaking contact does not stop the pain, the pain of surging muscles where once there were none, fierce talons of pain that scrape my back, bringing forth leathery wings!
0: I'm-
1: I'm emphasizing the words that are being
0: emphasized here. <laughs> The ones that are boldened in the middle of the sentence. (laughs) My body, my face, my very soul. They are changed,
1: transformed, filled with a bursting, billowing power. Power for good or power for evil. And I choose evil. An evil so great, so monumental, but only one name in all the annals of literature will contain it. (sighs)
0: Don't make that face. That's what it says. (laughs) You are reading word for word, yes. (laughs) The name of
1: Tolkien's ultimate villain, that dark lord who personified evil, who was truly evil incarnate, the name of Sauron. Nerd. He's a fucking nerd. It was the 1960s. It weren't even cool movies yet.
0: I still don't know why they felt the need to add the double meaning to his name, but I I will say this man is undergoing very quick and accurate evaluations of what's happening to his body as it freakishly transforms in a way that he has never experienced like It's so I, beautiful. I can't imagine undergoing the freakish feeling of my muscles contracting and growing and spasming and being able to coherently name what's happening as opposed to just being thinking, what in the hell? You know, most of this page, like at the top, there's some of the yellow crackle from the previous page. And then most of the rest of it is this like blue shadowy color. Essentially just like the way blue used to be used in old printing techniques where, say in a modern comic, they might use more actual black and gray ink. But it's essentially like the 60s equivalent of shadowy effects. And he's just doing all this narration. We get all these shots of him arching and his muscles changing.
1: Jutting his ass out.
0: Jutting his ass out at the moment that his wings are fully growing. And then we get just like the panel where he's first fully transformed in all of his green glory against again a yellow energy backdrop where he does the i choose evil part which again just feeling your body transform and he's literally saying i could be good or i could be bad and i choose to be a bad bitch (laughs) now i'm gonna go fly into the night
1: And you get him, like, as he's flying away, he's, of course, silhouetted against the moon. This is the best page. This is the cover art for this episode. Um, This is pure gold. I love this so much.
0: Yeah, like, people, as we said earlier, tend to overlook 1960s X-Men. But there is one period that has a little bit of cult classic status, even though it would be eclipsed in fandom memory by what would come later post the revival and the period that anyone ever talks about is this adams and thomas period largely specifically due to adams especially where neil adams brings a uniqueness and dynamism of style that the x-men had never seen even half of before this and I think it's one of the most memorable, striking, and just all-around high-quality aesthetics that we see in 1960s American comic book art. Because the dramatics are just so fucking intense. Um, I'll go ahead and note, also, The Colorist isn't specifically listed. In the print copy of either 60 or 61, there is a fan letter sent in asking why marvel isn't listing the colorists in the credits page and the editor replies that at the time that they are doing the final editing notes before prints they're not always 100% sure who's going to color it so they're not able to provide 100% accuracy but they do say that up until that point that neil adams had been coloring all of his work on the title so these pages are most likely also colored by neil adams so he's presumably doing pencils and coloration, just not the inks. But there's just a lot of things that we could talk about in terms of what's so great about Adams's art. I think just the sense of drama extends across all of it, We're just the page compositions the way the eye is led. On this transformation page specifically, we get like the arch of his arms going back as he's like screaming as the energy enters him. And that leads your eye to like him screaming, ripping his shirt off. And he's like looking down, which diagonally goes to the next shot, which then flows into the movement of the burgeoning wings. And everything is just very intentionally composed to lead your arm across the page and all of the muscles are very tense and like when he's ripping at his shirt that truly is a clenched hand and there's just a lot of drama going on uh
1: this is stunning i honestly cannot say enough nice things about neil adams uh did you know that he did um stanley apparently tried to hold like a bunch of like comics creators like hangout meetings back in the day and um Neil Adams would show up and try to turn them all into union meetings, and Stanley was like, "That's that's not what this is."
0: <laughs> yeah, I when he passed not that long ago, I did see like some tweeting threads about like um his history of like fighting for workers' rights and stuff. I don't know like a lot of specifics, but yeah, from everything I could see, was just like right on, as always. The artists of '60s Marvel were just the absolute top as compared to just what editorial was doing in general and specifically in terms of exploiting them
1: um yeah rest in peace neil adams total fucking badass There's, there's there's a page at the end of the first issue where like angel discovers that uh sauron's got his hypno eye power thing that he has um and it's just you cannot overstate just how ridiculously horrified his face looks. It's so expressive. And it's very realistic art too. This isn't that stylized, I would say. Um, certainly not compared... Like a lot of times we've talked about really expressive art. It has been quite stylized. This is very like realistic as these things go for something about a flying dinosaur man. But like, yeah, it's really impressive being this detailed and expressive at the same time.
0: So good yeah which while we have just angel on the page i'm also going to mention i did not remember and don't know if i ever noticed before rereading these this time the way to which neil adams draws men in a way that's a little fruity by which i mean he knows how to draw a hot man like the chests are just very classically handsome toned chests You've zoomed in on the arched butt. That wasn't specifically (laughs) what I was thinking about. But we get, like, this is a man who specifically draws the hair on some of the male characters' arms, specifically human Lycos. And I'm just like, that is a faggy little detail. Angel fully has DSLs at points in this comic. This is just... The word homoeroticism is overused, so I'm not going to use that word, but just... You could tell me that a fag drew this, and I'd be like, oh yeah, of course. Uh,
1: also, the least fatphobic 1960s blob I've seen. Props yeah, for that.
0: Yeah, like that blob doesn't look horrendously offensive, which is very strange for the 1960s. It looks human. Yeah. I'm impressed. Yeah. While you have this page open, I will call out this specific piece of dialogue. On a more heterosexual note, we have Iceman saying, Never mind our brother mutants, tell me about the Scarlet Witch. She's one early bird, even the worms get up to watch.
1: Okay, okay, but on the subject of Iceman, you, you this this one's this one's for you. Where is it? When they're in the danger room.
0: You're pointing to, they're in the danger room doing an exercise. Angel has just grabbed Iceman after he fell off of like a disassembling ice slide. So he's holding on to Bobby by his legs. And Bobby is screaming, Lego, Angel, or I'll cream ya. I would like to see it.
1: I I will say, I don't think I ever would have had the courage to say that to one of my high school crushes.
0: Lego, Angel, or I'll cream ya.
1: (laughs) I love 60s
0: dialogue. I think he's so furly closeted that he's not even aware of the implications. I also don't know that any of these characters in their little, just concealed bubble, would ever even think of those wards in that context.
1: <laughs> it is extremely funny.
0: Yeah, we get. We also just get some fun dialogue back and forth where. In this period, they're always doing the thing of, like, Iceman is ironically a bit of a hothead and then gets taken down for size. Because he says, I may be the youngest X-Man, but... And then, like, one of the Danger Room machines chops his slide in half. And after picking him up, Beast says, as you were expostulating, (laughs) lad... As you were expostulating, lad, you may be the youngest X-Man, but you're also the most inept. So just... I would say the continued bullying of 60s Bobby Drake. He kinda deserves it.
1: Expostulating? Fucking hell.
0: <laughs> expostulating?
1: Beast, still the only X-Man to commit genocide. Probably. I feel like... Gene! Oh my god, Gene! <laughs>
0: I, what
1: the fuck? Why do I think of Gene? <laughs> I Gene
0: I think there's probably a whole like fan wiki page of content to go on down that train of thought. That, <laughs> um, yeah, Gene, but <laughs> Gene's actually got Beast beat on that one. But
1: Beast has only managed a couple countries.
0: <laughs> yeah, his is not entire planetary in scale.
1: No broccoli people
0: No broccoli people But I guess back again to a couple specific details of Adam's art I'll also say How sad and pained and dejected and betrayed The dog looks when Lycos is sapping the energy It just looks so pitiful and horrified And that poor dog
1: More good animal drawing
0: Yeah, yeah
1: after uh, animals two weeks ago, we're we're still on the wow people can actually draw animals train. It's really hard. Um, I love how the first issue opens with just like a page showing Lico sucking energy out of uh, one of his patients, and we get I won't read all of it because you've all had more than enough of my like reading of this sort of thing for today. Um, but we got more like dramatic sixties. Narrator voice What is the sound of evil And then like The X-Men are gonna have to face this by the end of the issue And then we get two pages Or three pages of just like clearing up Stuff from the last story Which was I think the one where Cyclops Convinces the Sentinels to try and attack The Sun Which I need to read For that reason alone
0: Yeah like we might actually do some more 60s X-Men at some point Largely to do other neil adams issues um i like a lot of the thomas scripting like the intro that you said and then like the Sauron script earlier because it just contributes to just the high drama where this is a soap opera like we didn't really talk about but there's a part two where scott and gene are together and Scott is just talking about how he had wasted so much time because of his fear of his optic blasts, but now they seem to have either started dating or on that path together. You've got the uh, spread up for, I will say, spreads. These issues actually have multiple two-page spreads each, which I think it's fair to say that double-page spreads were not as frequent of a thing at this point as they are today. Like, this isn't inventing them, obviously, but I think it's notable that these are doing things visually that a lot of comics contemporary to them didn't do. But you've got the double-page spread brought up where Sauron is facing up against Angel, and Angel's in the distance, Sauron's body is taking up the majority of the page, and across the length of his folding wingspan we get four panels detailing the backstory again as he sort of recounts it.
1: Yeah, like, the issue recap is done inside of Sam's wing with, like, the panel lines lining up with the weird and inaccurate segmentation of his wings, which, like, is the... it's really good. This is, like, what J.H. Williams III does on uh, Batwoman and uh, Batman way later like that incredibly like it's just here in 60s x-men neil adams rules
0: yeah i think that's a perfect comparison for like a modern equivalent of what these are doing in visual storytelling of layout like this is fully like jh williams style presentation
1: it is mostly just like this two-page spread that is that wild but it's so cool to just see this in something from the 60s
0: like these have a lot of variety in panel, composition, size, shape. Like, I believe the only other 60s comic we've discussed so far was the Doctor Strange episode, which was just very much square grids, and Lee's pages don't look like that at all. Like, there's a ton of diagonals uh, cutting across pages, making just more variety in how pages are presented, and there's just, like, a lot of fluidity of motion
1: yeah yeah uh, it, it's as much as we we like to talk about like the designs and the rendering of the characters and stuff I think a real big part of this is just like how creative the layouts are and looking through it yeah it's very few pages have like just a regular panel layout for this time period and I think every time that like it breaks away from that it does it in a really great way and there's a lot of stuff like there's a lot of cases where characters will be breaking, like, out of the panels that they're in. Like, you know, Sauron's wings will come out of the edges of the panel of Sauron. Um, and, like, over the next panel and stuff like that. Which just, like, makes it... It's like the thing where they're coming out of the page, like, I guess it's the comics equivalent of doing a 3D movie.
0: Yeah, like, the figures, like, superimposed, like, going across more than one panel so that, like, the events in a panel aren't strictly hindered by that panel's borders just another dynamic aspect of how it's all laid out
1: yeah it's it's fantastic there's one where it's just sauron's amazing eyebrow poking out of a panel of his head
0: this this panel too where like the colors are great too because it's like sauron and like the bluish shadowing against a backdrop that's like blood red just a perfectly menacing color combination Which, speaking of just, like, colors and backgrounds, I'll also note that there are various parts throughout where there's just, like, really lovely skies of, like, pinkish, orangish, or blue. There's the period when he's getting attacked by the Pteranodons, where just, like, all of that action is well choreographed. And then he talks about later having a vision and there's a panel that's like all this orange hue of these slightly distorted pteranodons as he's remembering them in his mind and it all just looks very cool. Um the splash page to number 61. We just get this shot of Sauron looking straight ahead at the viewer with those eyes. Those literally hypnotic eyes as beneath on the page, we also get Warren screaming, "Your eyes, your eyes,"
1: because he's being hypnotized. Yeah, uh, this this panel is where he's most frightening. I keep bringing up the eyebrows. I want like the eyebrows that Lycos has are so fucking distinct. But I am surprised that the X Men did not immediately figure out that Sauron was Lycos because they would recognize the eyebrows. They are a ast- They're huge. They're pointy. The like weird pointy eyebrows that like arch upwards
0: yeah like the shape of this man's brow is not your average brow
1: <laughs> i don't think he still has the eyebrows on modern designs and i say bring them back that's that's the first change i would make before you do any changes to modern Sauron design bring the eyebrows back
0: yeah on a less silly note i suppose thematically just want to ask what do you think of just, like, his moral arc, and especially of the ending, where I think it's notable that, like, this story with this brand new villain doesn't end in a big wham-bam fight scene, but with this very quick sequence of pages where he goes back home to the frigid cabin and tends to die they just slowly starve etc cetera, etc cetera, given to the elements and then of course tanya arrives we get the moral quandary but this new villain's debut story ends with him at least appearing to commit suicide by jumping off of a cliff after just like you know fighting against the vampiric hunger and that being like his moral stand what do you think of Lykos's character here
1: Um, well, like, his main motivation Throughout is Wanting to be, like Prove himself enough To Tanya's dad That he'll let him marry her Which, like, I don't know I think Tanya's dad's just a jackass Um, so he he Decides to go because he nearly kills Her dad out of anger as Sauron, and Flies off, and, and Apparently his voice is the same as A pteranodon man As it is, it's just Carl Lycos, which makes it even weird if the X-Men don't just immediately figure out that the weird guy they just net is the same as this weird monster they just... With the lives they lead, you just assume that, right?
0: Yeah, like, the fact that the voice is recognized is very strange. He
1: has a beak! He doesn't have teeth anymore! Okay, (laughs) alright. I don't even know how he's speaking, never mind. Okay, ignoring that. So that's when he, like, flies off is because Tanya's, like, scared of him. And then he's just gonna, like, die quietly, is his plan. And then she shows up, and he realizes that he is tempted to, like, eat her life energy, and realizes how, like, far he's gone. Um, I mean, frankly, if I was a vampire and I had to live off of other people, I'd like to think that I had the strength to do that. No one has more of a right to live than you do. It wouldn't be right to do that.
0: Yeah, and, like, Cyclops gives the final lines of two beings struggled for supremacy within Karl Lykos, one of them a monster, but it was the man who won out, even in death, and somehow we must find strength in that. And so wraps up the character arc for this classic character who is fondly remembered for letting his humanity win and never coming back and terrorizing in his vampiric form this is the last we ever saw he is truly a noble character who would say you know maybe maybe he would cure cancer he's you know his morals are such that he would rather do that than turn people into dinosaurs
1: uh unfortunately he um i think i think what happens if remembering my claremont run right is he washes up on the shores of the savage land and Kazar saves them, and they become buddies. Which, of course, like, Storm flies over the Savage Land and Storm is so powerful that, like, just being near her gives him, like, a Havoc High and he turns back into Sauron.
0: That makes sense. Uh,
1: of course, it being a Claremont book, Storm gives him... <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I... Honestly, I, I feel like it's good i think it lands certainly so far as anything from um 1969 is gonna land emotionally i think this lands pretty well which is surprising in the story where the evil pterodactyl man pteranodon man oh my god oh oh
0: Edit it's okay dude do, do you feel like one of us like everyone else now it's I'm gonna, okay
1: i'm gonna cry myself to sleep tonight <laughs> uh it, where the evil Pteranodon man names himself after fucking Tolkien. That it ends in, like, such a serious note. And it pretty much lands. I'm, I'm impressed. Like, I do think that, like, the Tanya... Co- you know what the Tanya Coffin reminds me of? It's Frankenstein. They're riffing on Frankenstein. Because that's... He and Tanya were raised together after his dad died. And in Frankenstein... Frankenstein... Dr. Frankenstein, to be clear. Because Frankenstein is, is the... The doctor, not the monster. I mean, he is actually the real monster of the story, but that's that's irrelevant. Um, Frankenstein's family adopt a woman who is, like, raised as his foster sister who's also the love of his life. So, like, it's that's a Frankenstein riff. It's just the other way around. So they can do, like, the class allegory thing
0: going on in this. Yeah, like, that all tracks. I hadn't really thought about it as I was reading, but yeah, you're right. And then he's an energy vampire,
1: but his last name comes from lycanthropy, which is being a werewolf. And then he's also a pteranodon, so this is just the best mix of stuff.
0: Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, I also want to note a specific bit of narration from number 60. X-Man, Mutant, Homo Superior, Wards that pale the cheek of a doubt-plagued humanity which has ever hated the new... The strange the different feared it as creatures have always feared those who may one day replace them and who is to say that mankind is wrong what did the last neanderthal say to the first cro magnon and i think this is interesting just because people tend to in general and we did a little bit even when we talked about giant size x-men tend to think about minority allegory stuff ...in X-Men is primarily being seated in Claremont-era sort of stuff. And for the sort of, like, evolutionary part of it to be less emphasized. But you do get some bits of it here in the 60s. I think especially, specifically here and anytime they do the Sentinels. Which, I think part of why it's easy to sort of gloss over this stuff is a the 60s x-men are still nothing but white kids you know so any metaphor is strictly metaphor and it's really not even dived into all that often and when the mutants as a class of people is brought up it's sort of in this like evolutionary fear sort of thing where it's like a sci-fi question and like the specifically like neanderthal cro magnon sort of thing really feels prescient of just like the way x-men is going to talk about these things later but it's sort of like an existential question more so than the writing really diving into say like more realistic and nuanced like actual discrimination metaphors you know it's very much a evolutionary thing but Those lines just sort of struck me when I was rereading it this time. How much this Adams and Thomas period really has a lot of what is associated with X-Men later on. Um,
1: That set of lines specifically, and I I, I noticed them too when I read this, I just didn't think to bring them up. Um, The Neanderthal Cro-Magnon stuff, uh, it's very much like the opening of Ears for Extinction uh, for the Morrison run with Quietly. Where we actually see that conflict as as devised by someone who is, of course, completely hateful and terrible.
0: Yeah, yeah. These this period is a bit more of a blueprint than it likely gets credit for. I think just reading it,
1: this feels like slightly. I'm gonna call it slightly more primitive Claremont. That's not really the right way of saying it, but it feels like the the, well, the, the Claremont is an evolution of this. I don't think that the earliest Chris Claremont period, that like 70s stuff, is that fundamentally different from this stuff right here. I think it's about on the same level. It's just Claremont has the benefit of a giant-sized team, whereas we're still stuck with um, seven white kids from middle-class New York families, and there's just not as much dramatic stuff you can do with them at this point in their lives as well. Like, yeah,
0: yeah. As we mentioned before, letters, pages, and these. There's like the question about coloration, which I appreciate that in 1969 there was someone being like, "Why don't you credit your workers, bitch?" I lo- I love the fact that someone walked uh, wrote in to do that specifically, and also I love that it lets us know that this was presumably probably Adams also coloring this, so we know who to talk about on that front. But beyond that. I don't think you'll be shocked to hear that most of the letters in these letters pages are all just saying what an amazing artist Neil Adams is. Like, that is the running theme through every single one, is just how amazing Neil Adams is and how much it stands out against everything else Marvel is publishing.
1: I, I'm trying to think of what else I've read that's from, like, 69 specifically in Marvel, and I can't think of anything that I know of, but, like... I've read a lot of 60s Marvel, and most of it is uh, people trying to look like Jack Kirby, which is not a diss. <laughs> trying to look like Jack Kirby is, that's 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 a pretty high fucking goal. Uh, but this is trying to do something different. And that's really fucking cool.
0: Yeah, and just like when he passed too, you saw like a lot of tweets from industry professionals just noting like, his influence either on them personally or just in the field of just like other artists who his work had tremendous effects on and like i said earlier there's just like a dynamism to these pages that is just really striking and still holds up uh yeah i
1: would highly recommend going on to marvel unlimited and reading these because they're
0: both really fucking good yeah so Surprise, surprise, the 60s X-Men story was actually really fucking good. The period gets skipped over, largely. And I think, really, that if you skipped over the pre adam stuff, that would largely be fine. But the Adam stuff is worth a look. You know, like, the fact that no one remembers the first 40 or so issues of X-Men 4, he comes on. That's really not a tragedy. They're not that great, like we said, but this shit pops off do you have any final thoughts on the initial storyline of sauron before you introduce us to our topic for next week
1: uh no i think i said everything i wanted
0: to say all right then uh what story should people be prepared to discuss for week two of marvel's merry mutants month
1: i'm so glad you're the one saying that because i i I would keep lined up saying merry marvel's mutants month (laughs)
0: I keep thinking I'm going to say that I'm very consciously having to think about what I'm saying. Uh,
1: I, for for context for the name, it I remember it being on a house ad of an old issue of Spider-Man that I used to have but don't have anymore, which is frustrating. Um, for like Marvels Mary mutants and like their books. Um, somewhat hilariously, the Spider-Man story was set during Inferno, so I can tell you the X-Men were not fucking merry right now. Um, uh, speaking of unmerry X-Men stories, uh, next week I've decided we're gonna read the classic Days of Future Past. Um, so that's Uncanny X-Men 141 and 142. Uh, actually with the uncanny at this point. Uh, that's Claremont and Burn. Um, my hot take is I think this is the first full X-Men story.
0: In terms of, like, the metaphor stuff, or...
1: Yeah, in terms of the metaphor stuff and making it, like, actually work. Like, the early... earlier than this for Claremont, it's definitely there, but it's there in the way that, like, occasionally a mob will run after Nightcrawler, and I would say that Days of Future Past makes a mutant metaphor real in a way that none of the earlier stories had, and made it an unavoidable factor for the rest of X-Men. Like, you could have just carried on with, like, the 60 status quo, and Days of Future Past makes that impossible. In, like, a good way, I think.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. That's gonna be classic on a whole nother level. I think, probably, fair to say, the second most famous X-Men story of all time, after Dark Phoenix, like, this is seminal, for all the reasons that you said, and also for something seminal it's very short it's only the two issues i'm gonna be very interested to dive in and see what this work with such a reputation actually is unto itself you know
1: it is it is very very good uh i yeah i'm
0: excited yeah so uh hope you all listen uh carry on with us and we'll see you next week bye bye Oh, oh, oh.